everyone, and welcome to more of a comment than a question. My name is Rachel Hartman, and with me, as always, is my friend and co-host Paul Connor. How are you doing, Paul? Well, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm doing okay. Uh, how How are you? <laughs> Thanks for asking. Um, yeah, I'm doing all right. Uh, it's the end of the semester, uh, so I'm pretty happy to be done. I'm done with classes forever. And it's a great feeling. Really? Um, yeah. And I'll be visiting New York this next week. So I uh, hope we get hey. to meet up. And yeah. Yeah. Things are going well. I hope so too. I hope so too. I'll get into that COVID test. So I was, as I was telling you earlier, <laughs> uh, my son may have COVID right now and I may have COVID as well. We're going to find out today. Uh, so that's been interesting. Yeah. My son, he's like, basically sleeping for 10 minutes then waking up and crying and then like falling back asleep in about 10 minutes and sleeping for another 10 minutes. So that was, that, that, was, not that was my night last <laughs> night. No, it was, yeah. It's the kind of night that really makes you like reevaluate your life choices. I just think, why did we, why did we produce this, <laughs> produce this human? No, again? Don't, don't say that, especially yeah. not on the record, you know, he's going to be listening to this in a few years and, no uh yeah if he is she goes, you know <laughs> i love you but um yeah wish you slept a little better anyway let's uh anyway yeah we have a guest on today um so yoel Inbar uh probably doesn't need an introduction but he's an associate professor of psychology at the university of toronto and uh more well known for being the <laughs> of the uh, two psychologists for beers podcast uh is that? I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. How do you feel? Yeah, about that, you, know? you just sort of dismissed his entire research output. <laughs> I mean, uh, being a podcaster is where it's all at these days. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, it's it's an honor to be here, and you know, a, a long-standing life goal. So, thanks for making <laughs> that happen. Um, so, I I'm okay with the fact that almost nobody knows about my research, um, and uh, I think then it's nice that people know about the podcast. So, so I don't have a problem with that. But I was actually I I was talking to my girlfriend, and she was like, all these she has like a moderately sized Twitter following, and she was like at a conference, and people were coming up to her and being like, I know you from Twitter, and she was like, you don't know my work, and she was like was a little bit like shit, man. Like I was like, no, nobody knows your fucking work, but maybe they know you for something else. That'd be nice. Yeah, yeah. How many Twitter followers do you have now? Sixty-five hundred. So okay, yeah. They're mostly hate follows, though. It's <laughs> mid, <laughs> sort of like a mid mid level account. It's really weird. Some some academics just randomly have so many followers. I think it's just largely related to the length of time on Twitter, just amount of tweets put out. Um, I think it's if you've ever had a viral tweet, you just mm. get a lot of followers, and then. A lot of people just stay and continue to follow you. Depends so. on what kind of viral tweet, though. Because I once, I once had a really viral tweet, which was just like a funny meme. There was, and you know, I maybe got like nineteen new followers. Because um, not, I guess people didn't, people didn't want to bet on me as like sharing more funny memes regularly, which I don't. Which so that was smart of them. <laughs> <laughs> they were right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think some people do have large followings because they're good at Twitter. Like I think Sanjay, for example, uh, he is great at Twitter and he has a big following. So it's justified. 
often it's like, are they famous enough to have a book or something? And then it's kind mm. of, well, big following for uninteresting reasons. I'm, I'm bad at Twitter actually. Um, so I'm surprised that they have as many followers as I do. Uh, and I don't quite know how that happened, but it's probably podcast related slash I'm old and I've been on Twitter for a while. Bad at Twitter. I think you're, yeah. Well, you don't, you don't like, <laughs> you don't share popular opinions uh, where it's like, you know, dunking on high power people or, you know, just like some message that other people want to be seen as agreeing with. Uh, You're more like us in like, Hey, this, this is an unpopular opinion, but I want to like ask it, but I would say you're very good at sort of walking this sort of heterodox, slightly unpopular opinion line, but never getting like fully, fully canceled or reviled. Well, that's what today is for. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So we are going to talk about a tweet, uh, Twitter thread that you started. Um, And so we've gotten some feedback about the pod that we don't always give enough background information. And so I thought what would be helpful is if I didn't learn anything about this topic and then (laughs) (laughs) as we're discussing it, if there's anything that's unclear, then like I'll know to ask, which is just my way of saying that (laughs) I didn't prepare. (laughs) Um, But hopefully you'll all be able to fill me in and uh, I'll still have some things to say. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, Thanks. Thanks for that. That's super, (laughs) super helpful. (laughs) So you all, I know you have already sort of recorded a part about this topic that we're going to talk about. So um, you might be the best person to give a, a summary of, of what went down, what we're going to talk about. Oh boy. Um, yeah, I can do that. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Alexa and I recorded an episode of Two Psychologists for Beers that's going to come out on uh, Wednesday, next Wednesday, um, where we're going to talk about this paper. Uh, so yeah, what's the paper, uh, it's new paper in PNAS, uh, basically, uh, looking at people's judgments of faces and specifically what stereotypes do they have about uh, what kind of, how do social traits look? Um, and they did this in the paper in kind of a unique way by generating these artificial faces that are highly realistic, um, having a bunch of mTurkers rate them on different traits. So some of those things, I don't know, that aren't really social psychological, like how light-skinned or dark-skinned does the person mm-hmm. look, for example? Do they have long hair or not? Are they outdoors or not? Um, but then also some things that are more social psychological, like uh, do they look uh, trustworthy, for example? Um so what they did is they got these ratings of uh, a thousand generated faces uh, from a bunch of mTurkers. Uh, the way that their uh, facial generation model represents these faces is as a, a vector. So you can think of it as just a long list of numbers that represents each, each face. But the model's kind of a black box. It doesn't tell you what those numbers mean, right? It's not like, oh, when, you know, a five here corresponds to curly hair or whatever. You just don't know. Uh, what they can do having these ratings is say, okay, ratings of higher trustworthiness by the raters of the faces corresponded to what changes in the numbers that represent the faces. So that then tells you, well, what can you tweak in order to make a face look more trustworthy or less trustworthy, right? And so then you can sort of I'm making this seem very simple. It's actually pretty complicated to implement, um, which is where, you know, the coolness in the work of the paper comes in is actually getting this to work. You can say, all right, we're going to take this face. We're going to hold everything else constant, but we're going to up the trustworthiness stuff by 20%. What happens, right? And so they have these cool demonstrations where it's like, here's the most trustworthy looking face. Here's the least trustworthy looking face. It's the same face, 
but we're changing the trustworthiness. Um, so this has, I think, a number of cool applications, uh, but it also bothered some people because I think they read it to endorse the idea that these uh, beliefs about faces are actually valid, right? So that people's stereotypes of trustworthiness actually correspond to trustworthiness of people who look like those generated faces. So there's no actual people in the study, right? Um, no, no actual photos of faces. These are all fake. But uh, you might think, well, you know, if the uh, untrustworthy person looks like, well, I'm Jewish, so I get to say like a swarthy, hook-nosed kind of dude, um, and the trustworthy face looks like a, you know, I don't know, clean-cock Caucasian, then you're perpetuating these harmful stereotypes about who's trustworthy and who's not. Um, even though, in my opinion, in the paper, they were very clear about saying, no, what we're studying is the stereotypes. So I think that's the basic um, method and findings of the paper. I wonder whether you guys like Rachel as the uh, stand-in for the audience, did that make sense? <laughs> um, the, I think that makes sense, yes. Uh, I think it's still not really clear what's so controversial about it. And I think it, maybe it depends on what the training data look like and like what the the actual faces are. Because like, if you just had a sample that was just going with your example, and I'm also Jewish, so I get to, you know, you know, I also say things, Paul's, <laughs> you're not allowed to talk for the next few minutes. Um, but if they just had a sample of Jewish people, and let's say that, like, actually, like, your nose, nose shape does uh, correlate to how trustworthy you seem, but then if everyone uh, has the same, like, Jewish nose, then it would no longer be a predictor, right? Um, so it kind of, I guess... My question is, like, how diverse was the sample that they were looking at in terms of these characteristics that people care about, like race and ethnicity? So do and you mean how diverse was the sample of faces or how diverse was the sample of raiders? Uh, the sample of faces. Uh, so it was quite diverse, um, particularly in age. Like, there's some babies in there, um, although they say that they do have fewer, proportionately fewer uh, black faces than you would expect based on the U.S. population. Uh, but they, they, are, they do still represent different um, races, ages, and so on. So it's a, a pretty diverse set, even though it doesn't perfectly match the U.S. demographics. Yeah. And so then, like, within, so, like, black faces, they would presumably have black faces that are presenting all these different kinds of emotions or uh, stereotypes that people have about like trust trustworthiness or intelligence or whatever it is. Um, so like they wouldn't be, I assume, confounding different races with different um, judgments, right? Does that make sense? No, I mean, I, I, I guess that's an empirical question in the end, but that would seem unlikely to me given just the diversity of faces they, that they had in the sample. Yeah, it depends yeah. on the ratings, right? It depends on the MTOC raters. Um, I mean, in my experience, like um, Americans are, are very um, sort of explicitly anti-racist. If you get explicit judgments from them, they're very, very conscious of like ascribing positive attributes to black faces and uh, negative attributes to white faces, uh, it, which is sort of, you know, an interesting phenomenon, but like most people in this area, 
uh, have experienced that in their data. I, I certainly have, and most of my lab mates have as well. So, but that, 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 yeah, like Joel said, it's an empirical question. And it sort of just depends on the ratings that the, the raters give, but yeah, you, I think you, you touch on a really interesting question, which is like, what, what are, what are people's ob objections to it? And, and I mean, Yoel sort of started with, there was a very sort of surface level objection, which is that this is phrenology 2.0. Um, a lot of, lot of tweets replying to the paper, why are tech bros constantly reinventing phrenology? So phrenology, if anybody doesn't know, it was, you know, sort of this pseudoscience that people thought you could like measure the shape of people's skulls and it would predict their character and, and personality and, and worth as a human. And it's sort of connected to, um, race, race science and, and, and is seen as like very sort of harmful pseudoscience. Um, and sort of the, yeah. So a lot of comments were saying, this is just like phrenology and making a very pretty clear categorical mistake to me, which is the difference between, I mean, this paper is talking about this is what people perceive. This is people's perceptions. This is people's stereotypes. And they explicitly say in like the fourth sentence of the paper, the, these stereotypes are not necessarily accurate. Although I think it's actually quite an interesting question how accurate they are. And, and we should, we should get to that. Um, but yeah, though, there's this um, very, very quick, very surface level objection of uh, th this is phrenology. Phrenology is bad. I don't like this research, which is relatively easy to refute just by saying, well, no, they're not saying that these judgments are accurate. They're just sort of studying these judgments the way we would study any kind of stereotype, right? So like there's half of social psychology is about stereotyping and cataloging and studying the way stereotypes sort of manifest. And that at its core is the, is the starting point of this paper, although they, they do add on this technology which they've also <laughs> done a patent for which makes it sort of more complex and i think more alarming to people in this case but i do think there's probably even if even if we say we sort of set aside the very sort of superficial this is phrenology 2.0 uh you know there are i think people can build a more sophisticated sort of argument which which is sort of a bit more interesting uh, against this paper and, and i mean yoel your tweet which was really interesting was sort of just asking for what what's the strongest version of the arguments against this research and so you know a lot of people responded to you i responded not really with giving you what you wanted <laughs> just sort of actually like saying that i thought like a lot of the arguments against it were sort of bad and superficial which we've, we've already covered but what did you think were the the better, more sophisticated arguments uh, against it um, that you received? Yeah, so I'll give you two. I'll give you the one I found less convincing first, um, which is that you could misuse this technology to say, we have these job applicants and we want to see which are the smartest. And so we will run them through the software and whichever faces get the highest intelligence score, we're going to interview those people. Um, and some people were saying, well, this patent sort of suggests that the researchers want to do that or like would support doing that. I don't, I think that's, that's such a blatant misuse of the model that I think you have to think that the researchers are quite evil 
honestly, to, to believe that that is their plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't believe that. Now, if you have the prior that they may well be evil, well, okay, you might believe that they are actually planning to pull this switcheroo and be like, aha, we're going to sell the software to HR department so that they can mm-hmm. screen people for intelligence based on how their faces look. Mm-hmm. That just doesn't strike me as plausible, given that they're so in the paper clear about, no, these judgments don't necessarily correspond to any underlying reality. Mm-hmm. It's just people's consensus about what these things look like. And like any sort of social judgment, they may be mistaken um th- here's do the you, so sorry, on that though what do you think they it's not clear to me what they do think the use case and you mentioned before that you thought it, it had some interesting and useful um potential uses i'm i'm actually not clear what what they are do, do you have thoughts yeah on that? so so as a so one thing that you might want to do if you're a firm is to be able to generate a bunch of different faces that have different attributes that are perceived in different ways and to not have to worry about copyright or photographing people or, you know, getting clearance. So that that's one kind of, okay, fine. What I get more most excited about is as a researcher, I think this has a ton of potential because you can say like, I want to keep race, age, and gender constant, and I want to only vary trustworthiness. Generate me 500 faces. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Like that's an amazing tool for research. And likewise, you can encode arbitrary faces um, and look at, well, how do these, the representations of the faces score? And what does that suggest about how the perceivers would have rated them on these attributes, right? So you can get um, a model implied trustworthiness score for an an arbitrary face. And think about all of these studies that look at biases that people encounter um, on online platforms where your face is part of your um, identity. So for example, uh, Airbnb, uh, I know there was a study there that looked at biases in, um, I think, people being willing to uh, accept uh, requests from uh, minorities. Um, I know people have been interested in this sort of like, you know, online discrimination, other contexts as well. And here, if you had these data, Um, You could do this at massive scale, right? Um, So you could say, for example, among just Black people, if you're more Black looking, does that mean you're just treated in a more discriminatory way by other people, right? I think that's super useful for research, and it eliminates a lot of work that you would otherwise have to do, like getting raters to to do these sorts of codings, right? The model can do it for you. So for, for me, the applications that I get most excited about really are the research applications, not the the commercial ones. Mm. That's interesting. Do you think, okay, so mm, there's so many directions this could go in. I, yeah, we, the hiring one is an interesting one, right? Like, and I I have a lot of thoughts about that, right? So I read that comment that it was a response to you and the person was saying, what if, yeah, like some company decided to use this. So my initial reaction was, well, if the company has this goal of hiring people that look trustworthy, um, they're likely to be already just implementing this this bias anyway, whether they have the algorithm or not. I guess it's technically possible that if some product comes on the market uh, that is advertised as you can use this to accurately detect the perceived trustworthiness of somebody, uh, which... In, in theory, that, that is how this thing would be um, advertised. It is possible that some company that might not have otherwise thought about that might say, oh, well, that could be useful. Um, you know, these companies, especially in like Silicon Valley, they like implementing new tech and, and stuff like that. So I guess that's possible. Um, but I also just had this other thought about that, which is like, well, 
Okay, so take the literature on implicit bias, right? So there's all this literature that shows that people have, you know, implicit evaluative biases, you know, prefer white to black, prefer white to Arab and stuff like that. Nobody looks at that research and says, hang on, a company could take this research and say, well, we want to hire people that people have positive implicit associations for. So based on this research, we should just be hiring the white people and the black, uh, not the black people or the Arab people, right? So... I mean, that was kind of behind my comment where I kind of said, well, you know, a lot of these criticisms would rule out most work on stereotyping and bias. And I think generally as a field, we, the consensus is you're allowed, to, you're allowed to study these things. Like, it's important to study these things, uh, to know about them. But I think like, yeah, like, like some other people were saying, yeah, well, when most people do that work, it's very clear the orientation is, yeah, these stereotypes are bad and the ultimate goal is to uh, eliminate them or, or reduce them. And this is why we're studying them. It, it's possible to me that just in this case, in this paper and developing the tech and getting the patent, there just wasn't sufficient uh, effort put into that kind of um, political ideological signaling that, yeah, like obviously it's bad to use stereotypes and um, but, that's the end goal of all of this. But like, is it bad? I think with implicit bias or stereotype research that's about like race or gender or whatever, it's easy to say like, yeah, it's bad. You shouldn't stereotype or discriminate against people based on their race or gender. But is it bad to discriminate against someone because of how trustworthy they look? Or, I mean, I think that, first of all, there is an empirical question of how much it actually does correlate with trustworthiness. And as, like, from what I understand, they didn't test that, and they're not claiming that it correlates, but it could correlate. And I think that it probably does, because, like, the reason that we make these stereotypes about how people look and how trustworthy they are is like we've kind of evolved that tendency because it's been useful right like it's not if it told us absolutely nothing then why would we even make that uh judgment and so if it does if like if it is correlated then like why is that a bad thing right okay so yeah you just took this in a completely different direction but yeah i think this is really an interesting subtext to this whole thing because in this situation, the researchers write this paper and they ex are explicitly saying in the paper, these judgments have no validity, like they're, they're not accurate, right? And everybody criticizing the paper says, these judgments have no validity, they're not accurate, right? You can do a very quick search on Google Scholar about accuracy of predicting personality from faces and, and see that there's actually plenty of evidence that we can predict uh, people's personality from their faces at above chance levels. So it's actually incredibly likely to me that these models do capture some, some truth. There is a kernel of truth to the models and they're making predictions that are better than chance. And I kind of think everybody involved in this debate knows that. And that is kind of, that is kind of driving, um, people's outrage even though the researchers say uh these these have no basis in reality i think the people criticizing it sort of know that they know <laughs> that they probably do and then the use cases become 
it becomes a really, really complex thing, right? So like, say, for example, I don't know, you, you probably couldn't use this tech for this, but plausibly develop, developable, don't think that's a word, just going to push on, plausibly developable tech that say when we're going to make decisions about um, parole, right? Like whether we should um, grant somebody parole, let them out of jail, how likely are they to reoffend, right? So we already, like in the States, people already use complex statistical models for making that decision. And there's all sorts of like biases encoded in those models. Uh, like, for example, the, um, like how wealthy is this, this person's neighborhood? Like uh, I'm pretty sure like that is actually part of the model because it's been found to be a predictor of reoffending. Like people that get out of jail and go back to live in a poorer neighborhood are more likely to reoffend than people that get out of jail, go back to live in a richer neighborhood. Right. So it's in the model and people use it because in this case, you really want to make as accurate a decision as possible because in theory, like people's lives are on the line. And if you make the wrong decision, people could end up being murdered or raped or, or whatever. So in theory, if you could accurately predict from somebody's face likelihood of reoffending or like actual things about them at above chance levels, like you have this really difficult decision as a court. And Rachel, it seems like you would be of the opinion, yeah, like if it if it helps you make better decisions, you should use it. But I also think a lot of people would be like super uncomfortable with that and myself i don't know where i stand on that i think it's a really complex decision like you could you could imagine somebody saying no for equity purposes because it's not because it's just like above chance like it's not making perfect predictions so you're going to have a lot of false positives a lot of false negatives and stuff like that even though overall implementing this in your decision algorithm about whether to let people out on parole would would lead to better decisions and even in theory like save lives um you shouldn't do it uh, because it's not, it's not fair. Like it's not fair to a lot of people who, you know, the model's making incorrect predictions about. Um, and yeah, like if, if that's your stance, you have to then be comfortable with saying like, I'm okay with more people getting murdered because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't implement this algorithm. And I think nobody, yeah, I, like if you really think through what's going on here, like that, that ultimately becomes the moral sort of quandary. Um, yeah. And I honestly, like I've, I go back and forth on that. Like I'm, I'm not super comfortable with it using like social class in these models. And I've had long debates with friends about uh, like the ethics of that. And yeah, I just think it's really complicated. Yeah. So I, I don't know about the accuracy of these predictions, and I would expect that it would really vary based on um, what the trade is that people are judging. And and also, you know, what kind of pictures of the face you get. So if it's like openness to experience and some people have like a ton of piercings, it's like, yeah, okay, I see that. But that's nothing inherent to the face. That's self-presentation, right? Um, I... Rachel, you asked, well, why would we have these stereotypes if they weren't somewhat accurate? And I think one answer can be that as a culture, um, we have certain influential beliefs that don't correspond to reality that come from, I don't know, almost arbitrary kind of like cultural, culturally popular knowledge. We're like, okay, well, you know, we, we know what a scheming person looks like, and it's because of movies and TV and stuff. And I, I don't see any necessary reason that that should be aligned with reality. Um, and somebody responded in my comments when I asked, saying, 
you know, well, we show that actually um, a, a lot of the uh, face uh, judgments, like the regularities and face judgments, are actually um, the product of cultural stereotypes. I didn't read that paper, but anyway, that's a claim that people have made, right? So that's one one way that you could get there, potentially. And then... I, I wouldn't mean, necessarily mean they're inaccurate, though, right? Uh, that's true. I mean, I, I think that the person was claiming that. Um, like, you know, they're not accurate. It's, it's because we have these cultural beliefs that aren't accurate that we see this consensus, but you're right that it isn't logically necessary. Um, so let's say like kind of, kind of more broadly, you know, algorithmic decision-making in general about consequential decisions, like how to, whether to parole somebody, for example, for me, it's always a question of compared to what, right. Um, and what's the status quo? Uh, is the status quo that people are making basically a subjective decision where they are surely applying some of their biases to decide who deserves parole versus not? That is also unfair. It's just less transparently unfair than the algorithm is. And I think people hate the algorithm because it makes the unfairness transparent, right? Why should it matter what kind of neighborhood I live in that doesn't have anything to do with me? Well, you know, when judges don't use an algorithm, very possibly they use lots of things that don't matter and that people aren't responsible for. And that is also deeply unfair, right? So I guess what I want to do is like but minimize unfairness. And, and I think by making the unfairness visible, that's that's one way that you can do that. Um, and then in some way, that's not an empirical question, really, trade it off against kind of the consequences. You know, like you could say, well, you know, this has a large welfare benefit and it's unfair. So we're going to bite the bullet on that. But at a certain point, I think you would say like, no, you know, like we're willing to live with the worst outcome in order to be fair to people. Fascinating. Yeah. So mm, when you say be fair to people, yeah, I'm interested in unpacking that. So like you would say that um, if I'm up for parole, you like the, the fair thing would be to treat me the same as like literally any other person who's up for parole, who had done the same thing as me, acted the same way while in jail. Even if, even if we had like really good models that suggested that there's a high likelihood that I'll, I'll reoffend and a low, a low likelihood that somebody else will reoffend. And, and we know that those, those models, Yeah. So you're just you're just sort of willing to eat extra murders to be for the the goal of fairness. Willing to have other people bite the bullet on that. Maybe, maybe. I mean, there's this quote from um, from Anscombe, um, who's like a moral philosopher. I I think it's her. I'm 99. It's her where she says like, I just can't understand the mindset that says for the greater good we should execute an innocent person. Like I I don't have anything to say to somebody who thinks that that would be true. So I think that's one way to look at it is that we have these values that supersede the greatest good um, and, and that we are going mm. to accept an outcome that, you know, is worse on the consequences in order to not violate these principles that we have. But um, you are like, that's potentially... not like I, I could, sorry, Rachel, go ahead. Just if the greater good in this case is fairness and justice, then you are like killing innocent people for the greater good by letting someone go out on parole if you know that they're likely to reoffend and then like they actually kill someone. Well, you're not doing it. 
<laughs> so like I, mean, I guess like it's, it's more uh yeah you're just distancing yourself from the lever on the tracks but i don't know man like it, i think people in the real world you have to make decisions all the all the time um about consequences and so the idea that we should never let an innocent person be killed for the greater good I mean, I just like, I think it's that that's a, that's a great position if you're an academic and you never have to make like actual tough decisions about, I don't know, allocating funding or going to war or not going to war or, you know, um, whether to, you know, let people out of jail or not. Uh, yeah, because yeah, I guess we're not talking about executing people here. We're talking about like, we, somebody's up for parole and you kind of have to make some judgment about whether it's safe to let them out. Uh, and even if like, even if you're being perfectly fair, yeah, I don't know. I like, I, I see where you're coming from. I just don't know if it's totally feasible. Like, I mean, take it, take it to its, take it to its most extreme conclusion. And like, you know, we make judgments about how old a person is, right, based on their appearance. And they're not perfectly accurate. Like, they're really, really accurate, though. Um, and, I mean, nobody thinks that's unfair. I don't, I don't think, right? And, I don't know, in, in certain situations, it might bias behavior. I don't know. My, like, it's a lame example, but, like, you you might get ID'd at a club if you look super young or I don't know, you, you might just like not get a modeling gig if you look too old. Uh, and I, yeah. And, and because, because there's this like general agreement that, well, yeah, we can judge how old people are and like, I don't know. What am I trying to say? I think like there's a, it just gets very blurry when you go from something like age, which is like, yeah, this is, we can objectively measure it and the judgments are super accurate to something like trustworthiness where it's like, yeah, we can sort of measure it and the judgments are better than chance. But I'm, I'm just curious, like where, <laughs> you know, where in that gray area in between age and trustworthiness, does it become like, like super morally problematic to, uh, for people to make judgments and act on them. Yeah. I mean, I think looking for people to be really consistent in this is, is a bit ridiculous. So I, I think really it has to do with like kind of what we're used to. So I, I think a great example is if you're ugly, you get treated worse, right? And you get treated worse in lots of ways that aren't justifiable on the basis of you're ugly. So it's not only you won't get a job as a model, it's uh, your people don't want to hang out with you. They don't want to hire you, so on and so forth. And that's super unfair, right? But we're used to it. We're just used to attractiveness-based discrimination. It's just so normal to us, it fades into the background. And so we kind of live with that and mostly think that it's fine. So I don't know. I, I don't know what the right answer is. Um, I guess as a general principle, if we're going to set up a system for making decisions, I would rather make the rules explicit. And then we can have a conversation about, well, does this seem like a good thing to include or not? And my fear is that people revolt against that because they're offended by 
the idea of incorporating some of these factors. And then we go to the status quo, which is that nobody knows what the biases are, right? And that that strikes me as worse. Yeah, I think that, um, I don't know. I, like, I, I like your point about just uh, recognizing that some some sort of judgment or discrimination is going to be happening anyway. And I think like a lot of this seems to just be that people don't like technology and they don't like, you know, new things that are threatening to them. Um, and that's kind of ridiculous to me, but anyway, um, what was the, you, so you started by saying there were two sort of objections, uh, Hmm. what's oh, yeah. the second one right. nice callback <laughs> getting us back on track yeah, good. no great memory um so here's the objection that i think is strongest is these models can reinforce the stereotypes that they um measure so if for example i'm a firm and i'm a comp i want to uh generate a bunch of faces of people who look smart to put on my website uh, where i want pictures of people who you know are there doing smart things and i'm like model make me a bunch of smart looking faces and then i put them on my website in a smart context people are like oh well, that's what smart people look like doing smart things right and so there can be this like feedback loop where you end up reinforcing the stereotypes that went into the model um i mean i that seems not ridiculous to me um i don't know how consequential that would be um I don't know how strong those effects would be, but if you're like, what is a possible negative consequence of this? That's mm. one. I guess I would again go back to, okay, if you don't have the model, you are going to still be like doing the same thing. Like what's, yeah, people kept saying this reifies, this reifies stereotypes and I don't, it just seems like a very hand wavy thing to me. Okay. But you, I mean, I guess you put a, you give a concrete example, right? Like it's um, if, if somebody was, didn't have the model and they were just hand picking faces, they thought were smart. They just might be less, less good at reflecting the sort of bias of the crowds that's captured in the model. And so there might be more noise in the faces they look on their website, but man, like what, what evidence do we have of this happening and what causal evidence do we have of this doing anyone harm? Like Pete, the way people responded to this paper, it was like, this has such obvious, massive harms. But then if you start to ask questions about like, well, what's the harm? It's this it's really like hypothetical scenarios where there's no, no evidence supporting these. And then, but then like, it's just, but what about history? Right? Like, what about, what about this, uh, the phrenologist and stuff like that, which I don't know, like at that point, I don't it's like, even well, see the connection are, really, but what are yeah. we even talking about? Yeah. Yeah. No, it, I, I think you're totally right that um, to me, a lot of these justifications felt sort of post hoc and Rachel, I know that Kurt Gray, your advisor does not believe that such a thing happens. Um, <laughs> but we, we disagree on that point. Um, and, and it sure seemed like this was happening. So, so I think part of it can be explained by, um, bad things that are happening with uh, kind of around this sort of technology um, that make people uh, kind of hypervigilant. Part of it is that within AI ethics, they have a very kind of risk-focused mentality. But I think a big part of it is that uh, one or two influential accounts happened to denounce this paper, and a bunch of people took their cues from those influential accounts. It's like, oh, if this person says it, it must be true. Um, and uh, then kind of made up some reasons afterwards that it was true. Yeah. Uh, and it became a pretty big pile on. I mean, the, the first author has deleted, deleted his Twitter 
I, I don't know. I don't know how he's doing. It's actually, it's really, it's really interesting because like the lab I'm in at Columbia does very similar kinds of research. And we, in our Slack, we're sharing this paper and saying, hey, look, this is all, this is awesome. Like, look, look at this amazing stim set and technology. You could use it for all these purposes, like similar to what you were, uh, you were discussing. So yeah, we um, had some interesting conversations um, with, with my lab mates about it. Um, and they were, you know, like, it's interesting, like young researchers these days, I feel like even if people, it's not clear in their mind that they understand why something's problematic. If there's enough people saying it's problematic, they are like super reluctant, like, like super sensitive to like a false negative, right. To making a false negative, right. Like, so like the, the way like your, your career is as an ECR, it's like not damaging at all to make a false positive and say, yeah, this research is horrible. should never be done. Uh, even if like uh, on questioning, I don't, I don't really have clear rationale for thinking that, but you know, but if you make a false negative and you come out like, like stupid me and just go on Twitter and say, Hey, no, like actually like people are getting this wrong and there's something you haven't thought of yet, or like you're, you're not totally across that there's huge risks to that. So it was really interesting to me to ask sort of my lab mates about it and ask prodding questions and sort of like, you get to them, you sort of get them to the point where they're like, yeah, no, I guess like, I guess you could apply that argument to almost all stereotyping research. Uh, but then there's still this like massive reluctance to say, yeah, the, these people are wrong or these people are overreacting or they're, they're acting unfairly. And I think it's just related to, yeah, these incentives and imbalanced risks for, for us in the research community. And I just think that exacerbates the situation. Cause like everybody's willing to make a false positive and like, no, like everybody's really, really reluctant to sort of speak up and maybe make a false negative and, and be the one sort of defending research that like is problematic just in a way you haven't thought of. Yeah. I mean, I think people see which way the wind is blowing um, and they see that there's a lot of people saying this is bad. And then do you really want to be the person who like argues with a bunch of angry people saying like, Oh, it's actually not as bad as you think. Um, and I think that people do take their cues from kind of influential accounts and the way that those accounts have gotten influential is by not being particularly tempered in their criticism, right? So like, what does the Twitter algorithm like? It likes moral outrage. So if you yell angrily about a bunch of stuff, you become more influential and that's good for you and you get reinforced for it. And if you write the like tempered, moderate tweet, uh, you know, best case scenario, it doesn't really go anywhere. And worst case scenario, people show up to call you a phrenologist or, you know, what have you. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's that the rewards are, are asymmetric, right? And, and people are kind of rationally, in my opinion, responding to them. Um, and this is just like the information environment that we have on Twitter, like certain kinds of communication are preferred by the algorithm and the people who engage in those kinds of communication uh, kind of rise to the top. And they become influential and then people listen to them and they set the tone. And I think that's really bad for scientific communication. And I, I wish that people would be a little more careful about, you know, um, going along with this stuff. But, you know, it is what it is. Like, we're not immune from social psychology, right? This is like very basic stuff that you, 
seems to fall very naturally out of like just how how is social media designed mm. yeah yeah so i i was interested in one quote tweet of your thread that you kind of haven't responded to but i'm interested in what you thought about it so maybe you know the one i'm talking about it was uh by somebody called the data therapist and they kind of did sort of a quote tweet of you in a tweet thread, but then they ended up asking. So in your case, uh, Yoel, I assume you are Jewish. <laughs> I wonder what they're basing that on. Uh, <laughs> stereotype. Invidious stereotypes. I assume like you're Jewish. How would you feel if the data set and models were about people perceiving Jewishness in from the face, any issues with that for you, maybe taking history into account up to you, you may feel danger. Um, another example, if you're LGBTQ++, how would you feel about uh, the paper modeling gay queer from the face? Are you in a country region where it's dangerous to be called out as such if you aren't? Um, yeah. So this is like, I guess they're blurring the lines between a model that's like predicting people's perceptions versus a model that's predicting like reality. Um, but I, well, I, but even I kind of think that is blurred. Like if we were to give it the most charitable interpretation, like they could still be asking, what would you think about a model that modeled perceived Jewishness? Like that it wasn't about like actually predicting whether someone's Jewish, but whether someone looks Jewish to, you know, a, a bunch of M-Turkers or someone looks like they're LGBTQ. Um, so I think like we can just take that as the question. Yeah, I mean, I I did think I responded to this guy. Maybe I just mm. thought I did and didn't. But I, you know, I have no problem with the idea of a J score, and I think it would be kind of funny. And I feel like I would rank pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, so would you, Rachel. I mean, not to perpetuate Nvidia stereotypes, but no, I think that would be fun. But like, look, you know, we are not in a position here where uh, being Jewish is a big liability for us, or somebody might might want to like, you know, beat us up because of it. Sure. I presume. When I moved, I so I moved to Brooklyn in like September last year, and there was all these Orthodox Jewish people on the street giving out these flowers. Uh, I don't know what what this tradition is like, um, but it was some something of like doing a mitzvah or something. Anyway, a bunch of them said to me, "Hey, you look Jewish," and, and I was like, "What? I've never heard that before." But anyway, my J score could be, you know. Above. I, I don't know. That, that strikes <laughs> oh, me as fucking crazy. Yeah, no, you look super Aryan, actually. But, you know, maybe they were just trying to be nice. Well, yeah. maybe you're just basing that off bias samples. Maybe we need more orthodox uh, research participants, and then I'd be like, get my high J score. A fair point. I don't know. Okay. So that... <laughs> That kind of reminded me of like something I was I was thinking when I was thinking about this research because I, I I got really just interested in how both sides of the debate were like so strongly saying no these these judgments are completely inaccurate uh, yet it's actually quite easy to Google and find research that suggests that they probably are like even I mean one paper like Samin Vazir is on a paper like showing accuracy of personality judgments um, uh, and Sam Gosling. Um, from like 20, 2010 or something like that. But I, yeah, I think like in an ideal world, like there's totally a purpose for investigating both the judgments people make and the accuracy of those judgments. 
Because I think in most cases, the conclusion is going to be for the everyday person, you should be far less confident in these judgments than, than you are, right? And, but I almost just feel like this, everybody has to play this dishonest game where, you know, like these researchers are pretending to like study purely perceptions and pretending like that there's, they have no like alignment with reality. And then the, the outrage mob is also pretending that these judgments have no, no alignment with reality. And I think like a much more useful thing we could be doing is just really honestly looking at how confident are people in these judgments that they make, uh, like how confident should they be? And I do think the message that social psychology, social cognition, research like this would end up giving to the public is like, you, you really should be much less confident. Like your judgments are not completely worthless. Like it's not like, and I don't think people, anybody like is ever going to like really believe that deep down anyway. Um, but I think the truth is that, yeah, the judgments are nowhere near as accurate or as reliable as people think they are. And that, that would be positive uh, for society. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know. That's an empirical question, whether it's better yeah. to tell, tell somebody, Hey, your judgments have, they're better than chance, but they're really inaccurate. So, or just tell people your judgments are completely useless. Stop, stop making them. My, my guess is they would trust you maybe a little bit more if you were a bit more honest and, and telling them the former message, but it's also possible. Like it's an empirical question. Maybe the latter message is better. I, honestly, I don't know for me, like I just have this tick where like any sort of dishonesty or like fudge, fudging the reality, like just like doesn't sit, doesn't sit well with me and, and yeah, makes me want to like poke the bear. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say you, you definitely sound like a value-free ideal person. And it, it, I mean, here's a strong argument for it, right? That you can, if you're too sensitive to, well, what are the effects of this or how is this going to be perceived, get into a state where you're all denying the reality of something that everybody kind of knows is true. Um, and I think you're right that, like, obviously it depends on what kind of um, judgment people are making and what kind of uh, information they can pick up from the face. Uh, like, is it just purely facial structure or is it stuff that's sort of under people's control about how they you know, pose their face or, you know, how they cut their hair or what sort of piercings they have or whatever. But there's some accuracy. Like, these thin sliced judgments aren't total noise for some traits, right? And saying that in a certain context is kind of toxic. Um, and that does seem weird and bad. And I think people would trust us more if we were more honest about if we didn't have the uh, appearance of just like really kind of dishonestly avoiding some conclusions that we, we don't like. Mm. I, then again, I don't know how much the average person pays attention to any of this shit. So maybe not, but like, I think <laughs> our orientation as scientists, I think ought to be, to be trying. Did to you, s- did you, did you look at the article? So somebody responded to me responding to your tweet with this article. It was like a pop article like based on actually a different paper that was doing kind of a similar thing and it was like they had got their model to like rate all these celebrities on trustworthiness so this was like a nature communications paper very different and very weird what they did like they so they built a model to predict trustworthiness of faces then looked at like european portraits throughout history and they sort of showed that as gdp per capita went up in like medieval europe the trustworthiness of faces in portraits increased. And, and this people were outraged about this. I actually wasn't exposed to the outrage. Like I, I totally missed it, but it was another little outrage mob on Twitter um, about this paper. 
but yeah, so the, but the, the guy was making a point, which is kind of valid. Like if you read the article, which is like this stuff, people miss the nuance, right? Like even if you say they're inaccurate and you're just studying perceptions, this is not what people hear. And he like linked to this article that was like, literally, I mean, it had good quotes in it, like from the researchers saying, no, this is just about perceptions. It's not actually legitimate judgments of trustworthiness, but they also included a photo of Biden and the caption was Biden's high cheekbones and something forehead prove that he is trustworthy according to science. And this is out there. Like, and so it certainly seems true that like, even if you have all these caveats about, no, this is just about perceptions. It's not accurate. That's not necessarily what the broader public will take from it. And then, I don't know, you can have a debate about, well, is that, is that your responsibility that these stupid people uh, write these dumb articles and just get it wrong? Um, I, yeah, but it, it's it's probably true if you're thinking about the consequences of this stuff and how how it how it's perceived by like non scientists. Yeah, I mean, research will be misinterpreted. That's true. I would just say that your attention to the misinterpretations and which ones you think are particularly harmful obviously yeah. follow from your ideological priors. So, you know, people did IIT research and then some other people mm. misinterpreted it to tell, mm. you know, uh, sixth graders that all white people are racist mm. or whatever. Mm. Bad, right? Misinterpretation. But, you know, we aren't saying, oh, shut down IIT research because of this. At least most of us aren't. Maybe Philip Luck is, right? Exactly. So I think it just 100% depends on, well, ideologically, do you think that the misinterpretation is particularly pernicious? But then if you allow that as as an argument, then really you're just allowing people to say, well, I want to ban or discourage research that I don't like politically, right? And Mm -hmm. that for me is a bridge too far. Yeah, I don't think that you should... I don't think that we should be making claims about what research should be done or not based on the potential mis- or misinterpretations of that research by the public. Cause it's like, like we, we should do whatever we can to correctly uh, communicate and accurately communicate our science. But if, if people are going to misinterpret it, that's not, that shouldn't like interfere with our work. Um, and then, yeah, I also wanted to say that like, even Regardless of the uh, influence that the research might have on people's explicit uh, thoughts about, you know, whether we should, whether we can or can't judge people's trustworthiness or whatever, um, I don't think that it would actually have any impact on people's like split second judgments that they're making. Like the fact that you tell me your judgments are reliable or not reliable isn't I'm not going to be able to then decide, okay, I'm not going to make a judgment of someone next time I see them, or I'm going to like not trust my judgment. I think like we just make judgments and we don't even notice it. Um, so yeah, I don't think like the impact. But don't you think life. If, if there was like really well done research that showed you that it was likely that your judgments weren't as accurate as you think they are, don't you think that could affect how you decide to behave based on like initial judgments? Well, I don't think that like when I think that someone is untrustworthy, I'm not thinking, Oh, the reason I think that is because I made a split second decision when I saw them. And that's what I'm basing my uh, judgment on. Instead, I probably have already justified it with all sorts of other reasons for why they're untrustworthy, like their tone of voice or the things Mm. that they're saying or what they're wearing or, you know, like all these other things. Um, and like, 
I feel like people just, uh, yeah, they're like convinced themselves of the judgments that they make of others. And I, I don't think that you can like consciously unconvince them. I don't yeah, know. No, I, I agree that that, that is really hard. I do think that you can convince people to change processes if you convince them that certain information is biasing, right? So your judgments of a face are going to be inaccurate and biasing. Don't look at pictures of job candidates before you decide who gets shortlisted. Or even interviews are a great example. You know, we know that unstructured interviews, um, basically they there is no signal, but there is bias in them. Uh, so you should not do them. Right. Um, if you are forced to do them, don't weight them heavily. So, yeah, you can't stop the person incorporating the information, but you can try to keep that information out of the decision process as much as you can. Yeah. See, I kind of, I just think, Rachel, I, I just have this experience of, you know, doing all these studies through grad school, like like starting to do research in psychology and really like thinking about the data. And I feel like it, it has changed the, it, it has changed for me, like this, this realization that things are just much, much more noisy. Like, I don't know, like you teach undergrads about stats, right. And they run a linear regression and it explains 5% of variance. And they're just like so downtrodden. <laughs> like they, they just think they failed miserably because they only explain 5% of variance. Whereas like after three, four years of grad school, you're like, 5% of variance. Like <laughs> this model is cooking. Right. So like, I don't know. The, my, like maybe this just is not scalable, but I, I guess I just do think it's possible to convince people that reality is a lot more complex than they they think and that i think i could be wrong but subjectively i think i am less quick to make confident judgments about all sorts of things in life based on like just what i've seen about like the noisiness of data and the complexity of society and other people which i yeah like i think i when i coming into grad school i had a much I had much more simple, confident ideas about how people are in the world. And I don't know, that's like, I guess something like it, like a broad goal of my work is to try to communicate that to people, like to make people a little bit more just agnostic about the things that they think about the world and other people and how things are. But I don't know, maybe I'm just. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. You're talking, guided. you're talking about like ideas, which mm. I think you can have more of an impact on how people like uh, ha- make more conscious uh, thoughts and attitudes that they have. But like when it comes down to like social perception, um, I think that it just like is operating at a, at a different level. Um, and so it's sort of, yeah, I don't know, but it's not my area of expertise. So I don't really know anything. Well, so this is purely just based on, on me and not really any anything research-based. But I I do think that you can learn what you're bad at. And I I feel like I have learned that a bit. Like I learned that my first impressions are often like dramatically wrong. Like I think I'm like, I, one of my best friends now, like when I first met him, I was like, I fucking hate that guy. Such a smug (laughs) dick, you know? And I was, and and, and vice versa too. People who I at first find very appealing, like a little later, I'm like, oh, actually you're not that great. Um, And and so I've learned to distrust them. Right. So I, I do think that that can happen. Um, My 
question would be about the scalability, right? We can't send everybody to grad school for five years. Um, and so I, I wonder like how much you can educate people about this stuff in a practical mm. way. Mm. Mm. That's a good point. Should we pivot to the stick figure thing? We have like 15 yeah, minutes. Sure. Left. So speaking of things that change across years. Wow. Nice. To... <laughs> good segue. Yeah. I can tell you're a professional. Yeah. <laughs> She's on fire today. Um, yeah. So basically, uh, Colin Wright is a person on Twitter. I think he's also other things, but I only know him as a person on Twitter. So that's all he gets. Um, and he created this cartoon figure thing. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes. So I don't have to describe it in full detail, but basically there's these different lines and there's a stick figure that's, uh, it says me. And so that's like the, the main person. And there's people on the left and on the right. And it just shows how like over the years, the person on the left is just going farther and farther left. And that's sort of shifts the center. And so now the person who was in the center is now sort of more on, or even he was, I think a little bit left of center is now more on the right. Um, And it just is sort of uh, reflecting that. uh, Yeah. You, you can stay the same and you're at, have your attitudes not really change, but then because of, the leftward shift of society, you um, are now considered on the right. Uh, And so he created this a long time ago. I I saw it on Twitter. It's like months ago. Um, But Elon Musk retweeted it. Well, he actually just like tweeted it and didn't give Colin Wright any credit. And so Mm -hmm. now he's really upset about that. But but I'm giving him credit, I guess. Um, But yeah, obviously, Elon Musk has a much uh, larger following. And so that everyone has been talking about that and creating different versions. And it's just been all over the place. And there's a lot of takes. Um, So yeah, I just uh, thought we should talk about it a little bit. What do you all think about this? You should. I think you should start because you study this stuff. Like I'm, I'm kind of interested in what you think I don't about know. it. I, I feel like there's so much um, specialization in academia. It's like I study specifically how Democrats and Republicans like think about each other and how to get them to like each other more. And so it's not. But I'm like studied, this. Is, you studied is, polarization over time, though. Like you, you would have some insight yeah. into who's who's like know. whose effective polarization has been greater uh, over the last. Well, decade, it's that's not that's not what it's about, though, right? Because there's mm-hmm. when there's yeah, polarization, there's affective polarization, which is how you feel about each other, which mm-hmm. is where I'm uh, what I'm studying. But yeah, it's more like ideological polarization and the shift of um, people's politics. Uh, a lot of the criticism has been that like the right has also shifted, uh, which I think is true. And it, it's not, you know, it's kind of missing that part of it. Um, but I do think that the left has, and and maybe it's just cause I'm more familiar with the political left. This is not, I'm not talking as an academic, just as like a person. Um, it seems that people on the left have become much more, left and so uh and and so that rings true for me um i think it's a harmless little cartoon thing and people are 
it's like, it's just gone way out of proportion, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> Do I get to go next? Yeah. yeah. I mean, right. I, I think it's fun to think about. Um, I think you can slice this issue a lot of different ways. So you can say like, okay, what are the voting records of um, elected representatives, you could say, uh, what are the party platforms, you could say, um, what do kind of elites who identify as uh, liberal or conservative think? Um, what do party leaders think? And those will all kind of give you different answers. So, I mean, I think it's true that like, US Republicans, many of them have adopted some really extreme and crazy beliefs, but those can't really be neatly placed on a left-right political spectrum, right? So if I believe uh, in QAnon and uh, pedophile groomers and that the election was stolen from Trump, those aren't like conservative. They're just wing nutty, right? Mm. And, and well, so I think if you... The eh. stolen election one is like a, a lot of Republicans believe that. Right, right, right. No, I'm, I'm not saying like wing nutty in the sense of like, you know, few people believe it. I'm just saying uh, it, like it's an objectively crazy thing to think given the evidence. Uh, showing my bias, but okay. So, so, so you could say, yeah, fair enough. Lots of Republicans now believe stuff that's kind of crazy, but it's not really ideologically coded crazy. Um, and then you could say, okay, well, you know, what's the kind of mainstream Republican position on issues? Has that gotten more extreme? Um, and on, on some things it has like on immigration, um, but on other things, no. So Trump at least ran being more centrist on um, social programs and social security and stuff like that, right? So speaking specifically to people who were worried about their social benefits being threatened. That, you know, if you remember George W. in his second term tried to privatize social security. So in that case, we definitely like the, the Republican kind of presidential candidate or president has at least in rhetoric gotten a lot more moderate on some things. Now, if you're like, what did Trump do when he was in office? Basically passed a big tax cut for rich people, right? And a smaller tax cut for non-rich people. So that's very standard Republican stuff. So I, I think it's, you really have to be careful about like, what are you picking? Um, I think the reason the graphic resonates with people is that in left-leaning spaces, norms have shifted pretty rapidly, such that if you look at some of Obama's positions from 08, um, boy, mm -hmm they would get you canceled these days. You know, he talks yeah. about like border security and illegal immigrants and, oh yeah, marriages between a man and a woman. Remember that one? It's just like, there's there's kind of cultural stuff where we've just shifted our norms very fast and where it can feel disorienting and particularly for people who are a little older. So I'm 44, I'm right between Gen X and millennial. Like we had a very strong kind of affinity for free speech because it was the crazy people on the right plus Tipper Gore who were trying to ban two live crew albums, right? And, and so we were like, no, we got to stick up against these, you know, religious fundamentalist crazies. That's who we were worried about was like Michelle Goldberg wrote a book about religious fundamentalists trying to take over the U.S., right? That, and, and, and that just disappeared. It's just gone in the wind. And, and now, you know, where I think younger progressives are much more worried about speech that's offensive um, to individuals that belong to stigmatized or minority groups. Those things have kind of shifted very quickly where this kind of full-throated defense of free speech that was 100% mainstream liberal thing now is not 100% a mainstream progressive thing and has become more um, conservative coded. And that can feel disorienting. And so like, if I'm like, well, what's the truthiness of that graphic? That's what I feel like it's picking up on. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. Like, 
if from specific viewpoints on specific issues, people, I, there's all sorts of people who would be totally uh, justified in, in feeling like that, that graphic speaks to their experience. I, I do like, you don't, it, you hear a lot of, a lot more people say, I am a traditional leftist and now the left has moved like to this weird place that I don't recognize. Then you hear people say, well, I'm, I'm a traditional conservative and the right has moved to this weird place that I don't recognize. I think but there how are. Much, how much of that is just because most of the people that you know and that you're listening to are people on the left? Like, I feel like I'm just 64%. not exposed to enough. <laughs> I don't have like no I can't answer that question. Impossible to answer. Um, but I, yeah, like there's the whole never never Trumpers people mm-hmm. who are almost like the the analog of the the sort of confused heterodox liberal um, on the right. But you're right. I don't read their stuff. Like it's not it's not not interesting for me. It doesn't speak to like in my experience. God, I moved to the US 2015 when you know like you can look at like the usage of terms like white white supremacy and like all, all this like um all this kind of like language that hyper progressive people use intersectionality all this stuff like it took off like exactly then like mm-hmm. and it's just like gone crazy in there so that like yeah there, there's been like a huge cultural shift in sort of the progressive spaces that i've inhabited in in the u.s since i've been here so like yeah but i think like it's clear to me that yeah i i just have this one vantage point in this one very sort of idiosyncratic type of institution and social environment and that's very likely why like it it, it kind of resonates to me on on some specific issues like i don't think the left is more left really on economic issues than in 2015 like we had the whole or 20, 2008, like the whole like Occupy Wall Street was very soon after 2008. And there was like all, all these people concerned about economic inequality and, and, you know, like talking about capping CEO salaries and stuff like that. And I, you know, I, I don't think we've moved further left on that stuff. Yeah. Like I, I was surprised when it became a mainstream liberal, <laughs> liberal thing that you said we should defund the police. I, and I like. I still just feel like, what? Like, how? How did that become? How, yeah. How did that become the thing that we all sort of think like? But yeah. So, yeah. On on certain issues, yeah, for sure. But like, I don't know what it even means to say the left is more left. Like, what? Yeah. Like Yoel was saying, there's all sorts of ways you could operationalize that. And on some, the graphic would probably be true. And on some, no, not yeah. really. I don't, the, I mean, the bone that I have to pick with that a little bit is I don't think defund the police is a mainstream liberal position, right? So, like, if you poll Democratic voters, for example, they overwhelmingly reject that. Biden in his State of the Union said, I don't want to defund the police. In fact, I want to fund the police more, right? So, what you're talking about, I think, is the sort of people that you would run into hmm. would take that view seriously or maybe even endorse it. Yeah, but I think right. That- so. I guess I I just mean it was that idea was dominating discourse for a while, and it was it was something that you couldn't really, yeah, like in in my social world publicly, like argue argue against or like people were very very reluctant to like it was the it was the sort of popular yeah I, yeah popular is interesting, but it was the 
Hmm. Well, I think that like it was popular on Twitter and this graphic was like put on Twitter and it is a isolated sort of environment. Um, mm. the, the, especially like the people who are active on Twitter are not representative of society at all, but it is representative of like people who are active on Twitter. And so if you're, you know, if you're someone who that's your social circle is, and you've started to notice that like, it's, become much more uh left progressive uh and extreme in some cases like you know everyone agreeing that you should defund the police um then there is some truth to that it's just like it's not saying something about society as a whole yeah so i think it's easy to lose track of how unrepresentative we are um so defund is one example affirmative action is another right so that's one of the things where like you would really think twice about saying you know i don't think we should have affirmative action in hiring or higher education and that's rejected overwhelmingly by americans by democratic voters even by the minority groups that it supposedly helps depending on how you ask the question sometimes it's underwater Right. So it's it's just an example of like, we're really, really, really unrepresentative. And you can surround yourself because of education polarization and mobility and all of this stuff with people who have these similarly unrepresentative beliefs and start to believe somehow that they're popular or normal and they're just not. We're weird. And I, I think that is a problem for uh, people who want to win elections. Because if you have the kind of messaging around the kind of progressive project be run by people who are super weird and unrepresentative, and if you have the staffs for um, elected officials be drawn from that same pool, you're not going to come out with broadly appealing messages and you're going to keep losing elections. And I think what's really interesting is what's going to happen in the U.S. in the next 10 years where, I mean, the Democrats, as far as I've seen, like, are screwed in the Senate. Like, they are not going to have the Senate. It's just not going to be possible for them unless something really shifts dramatically. And so then what happens? Do we decide that this is actually, like, really toxic and dangerous if we ever want to win elections again and that we need to, I don't know, like, import more what by American standards, like, the kind of public writ large is just normal centrist, but to us seem, like, practically fascists? I'm not sure, but, like... You know, nothing changes people's minds like when losing elections repeatedly. Like people do then, I think, start to entertain kind of more radical changes. And I, I'm really curious to see how that shakes out. Mm, at a safe, at a safe distance, huh? Exactly. Right. <laughs> it's so much more fun from Canada. Yeah, well, we can always uh threaten to escape to Canada if uh, you know. Please do. Doors open. Uh, they would love you. I mean, they basically let you. If you have a PhD, they're like, please come to Canada. So, you know, well, you know it, the statistics that we get about our uh, podcast say that the city we're most popular in is Toronto, actually. And uh, so the joke we often tell each other is it's because both you and uh, Mickey listen to the podcasts, but <laughs> it, might, it might, be, might be more than that. I happen to know that you have at least one other faithful listener in Montreal. So I think you're doing well in Canada generally. Yeah. Maybe a lot of uh, Jordan Peterson fans too. You never oh, know. good point. Yeah. Hmm. Well, maybe when we stop recording, you can tell us who this faithful listener in Montreal is. I'm, <laughs> I'm intrigued. All right. Well, we've hit an hour and a half, covered a lot of ground. I'll probably delete 70% of it to like preempt, preemptively avoid cancellation, but... No, I think I'll, I'll leave it all in. It's, it's fine. Um, 
only can only a handful of Canadians listen anyway. So yeah, um, thanks so much for taking time out of your sabbatical. Uh, and uh, I know you have a dinner date to get to in Barcelona. Just living, living that uh, professor life must be nice. <laughs> the sabbatical life, yeah, it's great. Um, yes, uh, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, this was blessed. Yeah, thank awesome. you.